Acts chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 42 to 47. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. My voice has broken, by the way, anyone is. This is a temporary thing. I hope. Uh, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, please guard and guide what I say and also just give me the voice. And uh, we pray, Lord, that as we look at your word, you will speak to us, you will change us, mould us. Help us to become like this uh, beautiful model of the church that your Holy Spirit has directed and empowered and inspired to be more like Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our previous sermons, we've seen how God took about 120 followers of Jesus and made them wait. And then it happened. People were seeing and hearing amazing things, like the mighty wind, fire above people's heads, and people speaking languages that they'd never learned. Wouldn't that be a good skill to be able to have? But something, yes, yes, wouldn't be so much for Wycliffe. I made the mistake of uh, talk, saying Tyndale this morning, didn't I? Yeah, they need it as well. Um, <clears throat> Um, what happened that people could not see was from that time on, the Holy Spirit, who had been promised by Jesus, had come into the lives of each of those Christians. And not just for a short time on that day of Pentecost. They'd received a permanent gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit came into each and every Christian as it does now, he does now. And to assure them, to comfort them, and to embolden them and empower them for the work of God in the church and in the mission. God, the Holy Spirit, lives within every devoted follower of Jesus. No exceptions. And what does it look like when a bunch of Christians who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, what does it look like when they get together? What are the signs of a Holy Spirit-led church? Well, actually, it starts with devotion. You all recognise this, don't you? Let's see what it is. Okay. If I... Just going to try it and see what happens here. There you go. One piece of paper. Oh, that's the uh, notes that'll help you follow the talk. 
part of my sermon, oops, sermon notes. Yeah, there you go, it's stuck. That's good. I think that's important, that glue can do that. You know, like this glue stick, the aim is to keep the sticking together permanent. Otherwise, you would have used blue tack, wouldn't you? You know, the church had committed themselves or devoted themselves, stuck themselves to these activities. And you get the sense of um, God's approval of their decision, of their commitment, of their intention to stick together and stick on these devotion, these principles, to be glued to something also infers there's not room to be glued to anything else. Here's an example. You may know someone who gets glued to the TV. I'm just trying to work out. It sounded like more women laughed at that point. I don't know why. It's the last 30 seconds in the fourth quarter of the grand final and their favourite team is playing. And if their team kicks a goal, they win. And if they don't, they lose. And you choose that moment to have a conversation with them. <laughs> they may be able to bounce back a key word that you said, as if they were listening, but their brain truly is somewhere else. Can I suggest the next time a grand final comes around here, um, 30 seconds left, try it with Greg Peasley. <laughs> it is really funny. Um, if you're truly devoted to something, you will really try to minimise the distractions around you. So what did the newly formed church devote themselves to? Four things. The apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Let's look at the first one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. If you've got the, um, the sheet, now I've stuck to this. You got that one, have you? Okay. This is the missing word here. The spirit-led church is a learning church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching was all about Jesus. They may start in the Old Testament talking about things in the Old Testament, but they show the thread that leads the way all through to Jesus. They may speak of the fulfilment of prophecies that dealt with the Holy Spirit being poured out on all believers, but that was when they were showing Jesus, witnessing to Jesus and what he had done for them and what he can do for those who receive the good news of Jesus. The apostles may have taught about Christian ethics and behaviour, but they always related it back to how people in the family of God are under the rules, the house rules of their father in heaven. And we only get into that family because of Jesus who opened up the way at the cross. Friends, you know that we've got structures in our church here at Pitt Town, things like the church services, growth groups, PTC, kids groups, growth groups, uh, youth groups, one-to-ones, and also one-to-ones with God himself. 
you know, quiet times. But we're only a learning church when we are regularly coming under the teaching of the apostles, which you are hopefully holding in your hand right now or have access to very close, might be on your phone. And it's only when you're... Oh, there it went. <clears throat> and only when you're attending not only with your body but with your mind and your heart, when you're devoted to learning, then it's a sign that you're a Holy Spirit-led Christian in a Holy Spirit-led church. They're also devoted to the fellowship. Number two, it's a loving church. I've got some very old Christian books on how to run Bible studies for youth. And some of them, uh, they refer to... Now, some of you older ones might recall this. They talked about Bible studies that were called koinonia groups. Is there anyone here who's heard that expression used? There's a few people. Now, I'm not saying you're very old, but maybe you just... You read very old books. Yeah. Uh, it comes from a Greek word that is usually translated as fellowship. Now, what did Luke have in mind when he said the church was devoted to the fellowship. Here's some clues in the verses we've got uh, on your sheets. 1 John 1.3, it is linked to our fellowship, our fellowship with the Father and the Son. Fellowship is something that is ultimately very spiritual. It's with the Father and the son, His Son, Jesus Christ. If you go to 2 Corinthians 13.14, interesting addition, Paul finishes his letter with a prayer that the Galatian Christians may experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So fellowship involves the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and us. And for the practical minded among you, you can check out 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4, where Paul tells the Corinthian Christians that another church in Macedonia the Macedonian Christians had continually begged for the privilege of sharing, of fellowshipping with the Christian churches that were struggling financially. The fellowship there was linked to supporting other Christians in a very material way. Fellowship is more than having a cuppa and a chat, although it can, and I hope, includes that. Especially the way my throat is, I want to have some fellowship later on with someone over a cuppa. I like Ronald Sider's quote, and you've got it there. He said, for the early Christians, koinonia was not the frilly fellowship of church-sponsored bi-weekly bowling parties. It was not tea, cookies and sophisticated talk in fellowship hall after the sermon. It was an almost unconditional sharing of their lives with the other members of Christ's body. And sometimes it was involved with the local body and sometimes it is fellowshipping with Christians in another church. When our church has a passionate desire to support our missionaries financially, emotionally, prayerfully. Have you had a chance to think, if I missed anything, is there anything else? That's, yeah, that, that's okay. Okay. When we do that, 
We act out being a church that is devoted to the fellowship. When we approach our finances with an attitude of, how can I best serve the Lord with all the resources he has given me? Then you come across a loving church. When this is a place where people sense that the leaders use their delegated power to serve others and not to lord it over others, you've encountered a loving church. When people care more about making and healing relationships than protecting their own egos, then we've seen a spirit-led church that is a loving church. When people who haven't been to church for a while are rung up or visited and asked if there's some way that we can help, then we experience a spirit-led church that is a loving church. It sounds attractive, doesn't it? Imagine a community that is so known by that kind of love for all of the members that they were, in verse 47, they're having favour with all the people. The community, the larger community around, were looking at the church community and saying something extraordinary is happening here. Something supernatural is happening here. The third thing that uh, these Christians were devoted to, and this is where I'm actually putting two together or two under one heading, okay? In verse 42, again, it says they devoted themselves to, at the end, the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. This is the one with the W. It is a worshipping church. Let me explain it a bit. You know, um, I need to say this. Worship is more than any one thing that we do in church. When we see the word worship in the Bible... It literally has the sense of bowing down before God. It conveys a sense of awe and humility and dependence and submission before God, all rolled up into one. In one sense, worship is anything that we do that shows our devotion to God and showing him the worth he deserves. And that's why um, the after-service teas... Uh, the prayer team, the Bible reading team, the toilet cleaning team are as much a worship team as the music team if they are doing it for God. It's in this way that these next two things, the breaking of the bread and the prayer, are aspects of how we worship God when we come together. Here's the first, the breaking of the bread. Breaking of bread can just simply mean having a meal together. But when Luke wrote about the breaking of the bread, I think he's got an extra dimension there. He's actually, it's a way of him talking about when Christians remembered in a symbolic way what Jesus had done for them. In Luke 22 verse 19, we read that Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So 
we are remembering the great act of salvation that happened when Jesus became a substitute for sinners like you and like me, who would be heading for hell if it wasn't for Jesus. Israel Folau was correct. The Lord's Supper is open to all those who repent, who turn around and trust in the Lord Jesus. It's a wonderful act of worship open to all Christians, whether we do it here as a, just a symbolic thing, passing the bread and the drink around, or whether you do it home in your family. Secondly, under the worshipping church, we find that it is a praying church. We take opportunities to pray together. And as you go through Acts, just notice whenever a Christian or a church is praying, it's con constant all the way through. It's a huge theme in the book of Acts. I'm surprised the number of books that I've read on Acts sometimes, uh, it's just sort of mentioned in passing as if it's not a, a major theme. It is a major theme. Prayer is a huge theme in the book of Acts and it should be a huge theme in our church. And not just that we say prayer is a value, but that we back it up by praying. And it was wonderful when I came from the upper service in here and got straight into the prayer. If we spend more time talking about prayer than actually praying, modelling prayer, we are not a worshipping church. Well, at least we're not a church that's worshipping God. A few questions. Um, do we routinely tune out in our church prayer time? Can I encourage you to rethink that through and repent if that is an issue? And, um, hmm, okay, I've said this uh, sermon to two other groups beforehand. I'm doing another tonight. I think this might be more likely to uh, be relevant to church at five. Maybe not. What about messages on the phone while our heads are bowed? It really looks like praying. It's not multitasking. It's worshipping a God other than the God of the Bible at that point. It's worshipping your network rather than praying. A few extra, I think, touchy subjects. When we decide that something is more important than our church's Saturday prayer meetings, could it possibly mean that we are worshipping our sleep in time or our sports or our children's sports more than God? Are we helping them, the children, not to worship God? I'm not trying to attack anyone's sport or children. I'm trying to attack potential gods, false gods, idols. Here's two scenarios. Here's the first scenario. Uh, when someone, if someone if were to make you this offer, that if you turn up to a certain house in Pitt Town on a Saturday morning between 9am and 10am for one year, once a week for one year, and they would give you $1 million. 
would you do it? Second scenario. What would you do if you were offered the chance of meeting up on a Saturday morning between 9 and 10 a.m. every week for one year to pray with your church for your lost family, for your friends who do not yet know Jesus, for the people around you who are heading to hell? What does your answer tell you about how you have prioritised prayer or the prayer meeting with other things? Where does it fit? What does your answer tell you about who or what you worship? A spirit-led church is a worshipping church. And the fourth one... um, This is not one of the uh, things that the church is actually um, uh, mentioned as being devoted to. It's in verse 46. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Begins with an E. It is an evangelistic church. That is, it's a church that has a heart for evangelism, which is proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And I've said that this is separated from the first three because the first three about what the church is devoted to, this is different. Luke tells us that the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, he is devoted to it and was adding to the church each day. It starts with an initial 120 people, then 3,000 people in verse 41. And the Lord is doing the adding. The actual numbers uh, that were added are not recorded. I'd like to know how many were being added after that, but uh, God obviously um, knows I don't need to know. They were being added. And when you read the rest of Acts, you can see that evangelism, getting out to people and sharing the gospel was obviously on their agenda. They did evangelism. But here, it seems that Luke is showing us how the way the church lived out their dependence on God by the things they were devoted to, that was a very real part of how Jesus added to the numbers. The church attracted people, not because of fancy buildings or fancy building programs, but people saw Jesus in the lives of the Christians. Um, We've had Philip Jensen speak here. And the only reason I'm saying what I'm about to say is because he's already said it and I can sort of hide behind him. Um, He wrote an article um, uh, and he uh, wrote in this article that the church is not for evangelism. I don't think I'd have the guts to say that without actually quoting it from somewhere. The church is not for evangelism. And you're thinking, what's wrong here? Has he gone off the rails? Have I misunderstood And then he goes on to say, rather, evangelism is for the church. What he means is that the church exists for God's pleasure. Evangelism is a tool that God gives to his people to bring other people into his glorious kingdom forever. God gets excited when sinners repent and come into his family where they can be nurtured and grown and become more like Jesus. And you know where that happens? In church. 
when you understand that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit get excited about the bride of Jesus, who is the church, you can see what we should be excited about as well. Telling people about Jesus builds the church. You might do it in an hour or less by going through two ways to live with someone. Or you might do a six-week course on Christianity Explained. Or you might go with a non-Christian friend to one of uh, Greg's life courses. Or you just keep plodding on with conversations you've been developing with your friends and your family and your neighbours. However you're doing it, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus as you go into the world. But don't forget, our ultimate goal is to see them in heaven, isn't it? And as they enter heaven and we see them up there someday, the ultimate goal is enjoying what they're now enjoying and praising God forever. And in that process, we see that that brings joy to God. And that is something praiseworthy that glorifies God. That's what we're here for, isn't it, brothers and sisters? We've looked at the question, what are the signs of the spirit-led church? Got to finish off with something a little more personal. The question that each of us now has to answer is, are the signs of a spirit-led Christian in your life? Another way of saying it is, are you being led by the Holy Spirit? Are you learning? Are you loving? Are you worshipping? Are you evangelising? Amen.